everybody and welcome back to the D program. Today we have a fantastic guest, uh, somebody that you guys have been asking for, somebody that we've been asking for as well. Uh, it is Radio Free Amanda. Our, I'll make the joke again, by the way, we had to re-record because of technical <laughs> issues. <laughs> but the first hour, it's the only Radio Free source that we trust, okay? The only one that's not based in Washington. Um, all right. So <laughs> Radio Free Amanda, uh, who's better known by her handle um, at catcontentonly on Twitter, uh, is another great writer and, and creator that takes a closer look at nearly all the things hypocritical within the current imperialist world order with a particular focus on East Asia. Um, she also runs a fantastic podcast, which I highly recommend, with the same name, Radio Free Amanda, that interviews a whole host of interesting people, guests on diverse uh, topics as different as, for example, internal changes that happen within China to the attitudes and dynamics of leftists within the West, uh, and of course, our personal favorite, yes, I'm repeating the joke, dunking on liberals. There we go. <laughs> now, we're, now we're successful. Please introduce yourself, say whatever you like, and then we can we can hop in. Yeah, um, thank you so much for the very generous introduction. Um, my name is Amanda. Uh, I'm cat content only on Twitter, and I also host a podcast called Radio Free Amanda, where we talk a lot about, or we debunk a lot of these imperialist media narratives surrounding um, China in particular. So there's a focus on that. And I also, uh, I interview organizers in New York City about local New York City struggles. I'm also a writer and organizer uh, here in Brooklyn. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming exactly. on. Exactly, beyond based. Um, unlike, unlike us, she's a real leftist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. All right, um, I'll, I'll hop in uh, with, with this just so we can start the conversation. There's been a very, very good article that Amanda recently wrote. Uh, it's titled "Why Chinese Debt Trap Diplomacy Is a Lie," um, which will be linked in the show notes along with all her other links that you should check out. Uh, but within this article, uh, you do a, a really, really good job outlining the uh, false narratives and how they're created in the West, uh, how they grow, and basically, even though despite them being fairly easy to debunk, um, they spread nonetheless. So uh, I was thinking uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this the story, how these this particular myth came to be, and most importantly, how it spread uh, almost metastasized uh, to every sort of mainstream uh, presentation of the quote-unquote fact, the Washington line that becomes the, the dominant trend within uh, Western uh, journalism. Mm -hmm. Could you please tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, so there's this idea of Chinese debt trap diplomacy, and it's really spread like wildfire within the past few years. It's a very recent media narrative, and it's become almost a meme, automatically taken as a given. And the story behind it is that, well, the story usually goes that China pressures borrowing countries in the global south to take on these really predatory loans with all kinds of onerous terms and conditions, really high interest rates um, to build infrastructure as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. And um, China does this deliberately, um, anticipating that the borrowing country will default, at which point they seize that asset as collateral and they you know use it to extend its like military or geostrategic influence so that's the narrative behind chinese debt trap diplomacy but this idea really only came into being a few years ago in 2017 when an indian think tank published an article and used that exact phrase chinese debt trap diplomacy to describe um, the situation uh, with sri lanka's hambantota port it was used to describe Chinese financing of that port. 
And this is really like the number one example that a lot of people point to as evidence of Chinese debt trap diplomacy. So it was published in that think tank paper. And then uh, a year later in 2018, these two Harvard graduate students published their own paper, which accused China of what they call debt book diplomacy. And they accused China of leveraging, um, this is a quote, leveraging accumulated debt to achieve its strategic aims. This grad student paper was then widely cited by a bunch of media publications. And this was how the idea of Chinese debt traps made its way into Washington circles. That paper, that Harvard paper, was published in 2018. And by November of that year, 2018, a Google search of the phrase debt trap diplomacy generated nearly 2 million results. So <laughs> it really exploded overnight. And um, it was widely cited by a bunch of media publications. And then like a lot of politicians also picked up the idea, right? So in October of 2018, Mike Pence, in a speech at the Hudson Institute, he said, this is a quote, in fact, China uses so-called debt diplomacy to expand its influence. Today, that country is offering hundreds of billions of dollars in infrastructure loans to governments from Asia to Africa to Europe and even Latin America. Yet the terms of these loans are opaque at best, and the benefits invariably flow overwhelmingly to Beijing. And yeah, that's how this idea of uh, debt trap diplomacy like really came into being. And it spread like wildfire, but there have been people who have, you know, done a really good job debunking it. Like Deborah Brodingham is uh, one of the primary, one of the researchers who's really challenged this narrative. Um, she wrote an Atlantic piece talking about the ch Chinese financing of uh, the Hambantota port. And she did a really good job looking at the contracts and the agreements and did a really good job debunking this idea. And I talk a little bit about this in my article, but, you know, BBC News, they interviewed Deborah Bottingham about so-called Chinese debt trap diplomacy. They completely edited her interview to only include her explanation of the <laughs> myth itself and omitted all evidence she had cited against it. So it led listeners to believe that Brottingham was in fact claiming the narrative was true. And the purpose of these kinds of stories is not whether they're true or not. The purpose is the circulation itself, to repeat it over mm -hmm. and over and over again until people take it as truth, people accept it as truth. So by the time scholars like Brottingham do the research to challenge it, they face this uphill battle because most people have already accepted it as truth. So there are two instances that people often point to as evidence of debt trap diplomacy. And, you know, if you're interested, I go into detail about it in my article. But it's the Hambantota port and the situation in November of 2021, which was the Entebbe International Airport in Uganda. The situation with the Hambantota port, it's a little bit complicated. Um, they, didn't, they didn't actually default on the loan. They kind of used the port as a fire sale. At, I don't know if I really want to get into the details because it's like so it, it'll take too long. But if people are interested, they can <laughs> check out my article. But yeah, that's ha basically how the mm. media narrative kind of circulated.
It's very interesting also that you mentioned something when you were speaking about it, uh, the, the fact that, you know, it just gets repeated and repeated until it's considered to be just the, the, the truth on the matter. And you see this a lot when it comes to socialist history or, or events just in general, mm-hmm. uh, or not even socialist, but specifically uh, those who stand outside the American hegemon or those who resist American uh, like foreign policy uh, initiatives or, or directives. Uh, almost always you just get these things repeated over and over again in the media, uh, almost as if things are being manufactured in the media. Hmm, that's mm-hmm. an idea. Which basically causes regular everyday people who wouldn't know any better to just be like, yeah, well, uh, if you were to question it, they'd be like, yeah, well, this is just how it is. How do you not know this? Is every, everybody knows this. Everybody knows that this is the truth, uh, which is fairly insidious. But uh, yeah, I highly recommend people check out the, the, the article because it's really... Um, uh, Anybody who genuinely still uses the debt trap uh, kind of a, a argument uh, or even holds that, that perspective is just content with being wrong, <laughs> ignorant and wrong on, on, on the matter, uh, as is with most things with China. But building a bit on top of, uh, of this point, uh, apparently, seemingly, China can never do anything without it being spun as something sinister or negative, some evil plot, uh, almost in a very uh, yellow peril kind of racist sense. Um, I think we've seen this in the phenomenon of the at what cost uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, titles, right? Or, or in other examples, for example, China had COVID restrictions before, uh, which made it an authoritarian nightmare. But now China has lifted COVID restrictions and now they're irresponsible or incompetent, etc., etc. China's population has increased. When it increases, it's all overpopulation, you know, Malthusian uh, terror. Uh, while uh, China's population decreasing, for example, as has recently been reported, uh, this means that this is going to be a, an economic catastrophe and a failure of the CPC, etc., etc. Where do you place the origin of this narrative that no matter what happens, it's always going to be spun negatively? Where, where does this come from? Um, so I think the primary motive of this quote-unquote authoritarian China narrative from the viewpoint of U.S. politicians and also corporate media that does their bidding is to totally open up mm. China to Western capitalist interests. Uh, Chinese government really regulates capital in a way that uh, the U.S. doesn't. And so especially foreign capital, because they want to develop their own native industries, right? China is a country of 1.4 billion people, and that's a huge market for, you know, for example, the U.S. tech industry. The constant bombardment of propaganda about how totalitarian uh, the CPC is, how they're waging a genocide against the Uyghurs, how they harvest political dissidents' organs, all that's meant to create this particular image in people's minds so that they at least tacitly support or, you know, at least don't resist some kind of um, like Cold War or military confrontation with China. Um, Because I think this is really about a great powers confrontation. They see China as competition. You know, if you ask countries in Africa or other developing nations if they prefer Chinese or Western loans, going back to Chinese Mm. finance lending again, they usually say Chinese loans because the Chinese loans don't come with these high interest rates, uh, terms and conditions and um, stipulations of economic reform and slashes to public spending and structural adjustment and imposed austerity that, you know, IMF loans come with. And so the U.S. would rather not have that competition. They'd rather not have to deal with a strong China. And so they create this media narrative about China and they fund and incite these separatist movements in places like Tibet and Xinjiang and Taiwan Mm. in the hopes that they can break China apart into smaller ethnic enclaves Mm. that are just fighting among themselves because that way it can like 
weaken the Chinese government from within, and they don't have to deal with mm. a strong China. So mm. there's like that aspect of it. And I also see a lot of people uh, make this joke that every accusation that the West throws at China is a confession. Um, and I do think there's a lot of truth <laughs> to that, right? A lot of Western media narratives mm -hmm. about China are, are a kind of projection meant to obscure a lot of the West or the US's own policies or own crimes or acts of violence. You know, going back to the debt trap diplomacy myth, I really do think that the circulation of that narrative is meant to obscure a lot of the IMF's own practices of, mm -hmm. you know, so-called debt trap diplomacy, the way that, uh, you know, it, it imposes structural adjustment policies onto these borrowing countries. And, you know, they like force them to make these economic reforms, uh, slashes to public spending, slashes to pensions, uh, chipping away at labor rights. You know, it's a violation of political sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And I really do think that debt trap diplomacy narrative is meant to obscure from, you know, Western financial institutions practices of doing stuff like that. Another projection is that uh, this accusation that China engages in colonialism or imperialism uh, with regard to Xinjiang and that it engages in so-called forced labor. But how can mm. any politician in the United States with a straight face accuse another country of colonialism and forced labor, right? We're talking about a nation mm. whose mm. entire economic system was built on genocide and colonialism and forced labor and continues to this Still day. Is. Still is. Mm. Yeah, exactly. The U.S. has the highest prison population in the entire world. Like 5%. The U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's prison population. And that prison population is a major supplier of so-called forced labor, right? It produces, prison yeah. populations produce $11 billion worth of goods and services a year, but prison workers are only paid pennies an hour. And in some states, it's totally yeah. legal to not pay them at all. So what is that but forced labor? So you see why the U.S. is so hyper-focused on this so-called forced labor in Xinjiang. Last year, I think it was last year, they uh, signed into legislation what was called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And this bill is unique in that it automatically assumes guilt on the part of um, the corporations. They automatically assume anything coming from Xinjiang uses Uyghur forced labor. And so this shifts mm. the burden of proof onto importers. Like they have to prove that they're not using forced labor. Like they have to prove a negative. This kind of stuff functions like an economic sanction, right? It's intended mm -hmm. to create unemployment and destroy Xinjiang's economy, which the U.S. will hope this will foment unrest in the region. And the U.S. will exploit and use this to destabilize the region and weaken China from within. It's like the same playbook every time, right? You create mass unemployment, uh, mass poverty from outside, but uh, people inside blame their own government and uh, there are protests against the government and they, you know, it weakens the country from within and destabilizes the government. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's that. And I mean, <laughs> there's the case, there's COVID for three years now. The U.S. has constantly criticized mm -hmm. every aspect of China's handling of the pandemic. But again, like what authority does the U.S. have on criticizing anyone in their handling of COVID, right? You're talking about a country mm -hmm. where there was no kind of state response and that allowed over a million people to needlessly die of this. 
And in the past two years, life expectancy in the U.S. has actually dropped. And that's in large part due to COVID. Uh, you know, from the beginning, you had this uh, criticism in Western media on like everything that the Chinese government did to contain this pandemic. You know, one of the U.S.'s first accusations toward China was that they were lying about their numbers, about the real figures of people who contracted the virus. But, you know, in, in Florida, a data analyst was actually fired because she went public and said that the state government was pressuring them to manipulate COVID figures, um, like downplay them in order to support opening up the mm. economy. And this is just one instance that we know about. Uh, there could be, you know, hundreds of others that we don't know about because there's no whistleblower. Also in 2020, China revised its COVID death count for the same reasons every other country did uh, to account for early deaths in homes and hospitals. The UK and New York City revised their death counts for the exact same reasons, and nobody batted an eye. But when China did it, it kind of renewed skepticism of its official numbers. And it was that was just more evidence to support that China was lying about its numbers. So yeah, I, I think in general, this narrative is meant to dehumanize Chinese people and the, and the Chinese government to make it so that people in the U.S. don't resist any kind of uh, like confrontation with China. But also, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of projection going on here where they accuse China of so-called human rights violations to sort of distract from what's going on at home. Because like China's COVID policy was very successful. And I don't think that the U.S. wants people to see an alternative. They don't want people to look at China and be like, our government could be doing so much more to yeah. prevent this. Yeah. They don't want people to see that there is like, there's an alternative to not only the handling of COVID, but there's also an alternative to U.S. capitalism. It's it's super ironic because they, the the Americans built up this uh, image of what is perceived as authoritarian, uh, cont always containing this very specific characteristic of not allowing anybody to look at a potential alternative. So, you know, how they criticize the Soviet Union, how they criticize most uh, so-called uh, so perceived as enemy nations today. Yet the main sort of uh, propaganda machine that w in which they engage in right now when it comes to uh, China and to an extent a large part of Asia today is exactly that constantly bombarding every potential uh, listener, viewer, reader with uh, with information that, you know, this alternative that you see over there is absolutely God-horrid. And not only the alternative, the systemic uh, setup, which you see mm -hmm. over there, but also them as a culture, as a nation, and as a potential rival to us. And this, uh, you know, uh, it, it, this adds to the level of, I guess, uh, ironic hypocrisy, which they exhibit, because, you know, that was the main selling point, even back in the cold war where they were like oh look you know we openly share uh, all the stuff that comes out of the soviet union but the soviet union doesn't mm. uh, you know doesn't uh, show our shit and now they engage in the in the same sort of activity that they previously quote unquote criticized it's yeah. um it's, it's a never-ending spinning wheel we all know this yeah i mm. think uh one of the primary um objectives of this kind of narrative is so that people see what's going on around them see this issue of mass incarceration, cops just killing black people every day, mass shootings, our government lack of response to COVID. 
and they think, well, as bad as it is here, we will never be mm. like them because China yeah, is on. It's not as bad whole, as China. Yeah. yeah, we will never be mm. like China. And they find that reassuring, you know, as bad as it is here, at least we have freedom or democracy or whatever. Exactly. And they used to be a bit more modest because they would they would spin it, you know, at least we're not as bad as and then they would point an incredibly like poor, devastated country, you know, the absolute classic of white America, eat your food, uh, get your kids in Africa starving. Right. But mm -hmm. now they want to like double down on the propaganda, which I think is super risky and they're really fucking up because of it. They want to, you know, uh, show towards their rival, who is the second biggest economy on planet Earth and arguably a country who had uh, a faster development of life quality than any other country in the history of humanity, uh, while at the same time being able to point at them and say, look at how fucked up they are, look at how horribly they live, as you beautifully put, uh, you know, no matter how bad you have it here in New York or in Texas or in LA or in, I don't know, Wisconsin, it's not as bad as over what's happening in, in China. But them being so greedy that they want to both at the same time say, you know, this is a big bad threat that we need to combat uh, and they're super powerful, but also they're super weak and live pathetic lives and they're super incapable of doing anything. It's uh, And that greed's going to catch up with them because at some point that double narrative kind of eats itself. At least we should hope it does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think that they kind of have to put this narrative into overdrive now, especially with um, Xi Jinping's uh, targeted uh, poverty alleviation programs. I think they uh, they've lifted, I don't know, I don't know how many people, how many millions of people out of poverty, but, you know, conditions in the U.S. are getting worse and worse, especially after COVID. Um, people can't afford to pay their rent. People can't afford food. Inflation is at an all-time high. And they don't want people to see what Xi Jinping has done to alleviate poverty and see, again, that there, we, we don't have to live like this. There, there is an alternative. Mm -hmm. A state can step in and adopt a people-centered political program. And I don't think that the U.S. wants its citizens to see that. No, exactly right. And this is the thing that I think people seem to forget fundamentally about all this is uh, it's two points that you very nicely highlighted the first one being of course the the, the economic aspect of this there's no you know uh, good versus evil from the american perspective it all boils down to you know the bottom line um and of course the typical imperialist line which is we want access to markets particularly your markets uh, so our products can enter to your markets and that's what the americans have always kind of striven for but also the the projection bit right um and as you very beautifully stated uh they want to for example, uh, point fingers and be like, oh, there's um, slave labor or something to that effect without absolutely no evidence uh, pointed at China, for example. Meanwhile, the United States currently has slave labor. Um, they want to claim that the Chinese want to, for example, destabilize the United States or they, at, in the beginning, if you remember at the time, they claimed that COVID had been in ma made in labs by the Chinese, is used as chemical, uh, not chemical, excuse me, biological warfare uh, against the Americans, etc., etc. You heard all these insane ideas. Meanwhile, if you look into the into the history of it, it was the United States that has always wanted to destabilize and balkanize China. They supported uh, militarily and, of course, with finances and whatnot, they supported uh, basically terrorist groups in Tibet. Uh, mm -hmm. They armed guerrillas in, in Tibet that carried out attacks on civilians and whatnot. Um, they, uh, it was official U.S. policy, state policy to um, – State Department policy, excuse me – to uh, fund um, al-Qaeda-affiliated groups in Xinjiang. 
Um, and it's, it, I think it's also safe to, 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 to uh, believe that this is still, still currently ongoing. Um, and of course, the, uh, the point you made very eloquently that uh, even when China tries to develop these regions, by the way, it's an effort by the collective Chinese society. It's not like Han Chinese people are trying to develop the Turkic Xinjiang. No, that's not what's happening. There's a collaborative effort between the autonomous zones and the central government uh, who work like a, a, a unitary whole um, to develop the region. And since the previous strategies of keeping it basically um, uh, rampant with uh, terrorist attacks and whatnot that attack basically civilian centers and markets and whatnot, uh, since this has been kind of, uh, this has calmed down recently, uh, they're trying to economically strangle this area now by saying anything that comes out of Xinjiang is, pro- is possibly out of slave labor. So we're not going to take it in. Um, fairly rich, of course, coming from countries, uh, or for example, the United States, uh, that regularly imports from places that do arguably use some form of slave labor, if not highly unethical, you know, uh, perfect examples, Latin American fruit, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. Amongst many other examples, but I would like to build iPhone, up on this. I mean, Jesus Christ, where exactly. does the cobalt come exactly. from? Exactly. But sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but exactly right. That's the point. It's such a boring and, and tired um, uh, projection, and the most depressing part of it is that Americans still fall for it. Um, and all of this is kind of a part of a project to main to continuously manufacture consent for a potential future clash. Uh, military otherwise with China and we see this most evidently in for example opinion polls on uh, on, on uh, what Americans think of, of China as a whole and if you were to look back 20 years ago most Americans didn't really care uh, or had it like a you know middle of the road kind of positive opinion I would say now it's become like what 20% or 15% have a positive and the rest have a negative mm-hmm. perspective on, on, on China um, it's very transparent but what's depressing is that the Americans fall for this every single time but building building up on this point, I want to say, uh, since we're discussing media and journalism, which is basically the most ideolog- ideologized, uh, prof- if that's even a word, profession in the world. Uh, but for some reason, there's a common belief that exists that it it's basically exists on the outskirts of bias and opinion that somehow it could be non-biased. Um, of course, in people in our field and our uh, background politically and philosophically, we understand that objective journalism is, is nonsense. It's a myth. Uh, but for the majority of people, as previously mentioned, it really isn't that much. Uh, but my question to you is um, this so-called, there's several terms for it, ethical uh, journalism, conspiratorial journalism, democratic journalism, whatever you want to call it, this stuff that strays away from the uh, mainstream narrative. Uh, this kind of, whenever you graze this field, you end up going into semi-objective perspectives, if you even want to use that term, uh, more quote-unquote positive perspectives on China, and that basically causes your um, career in respectable journalism to die. Could you please tell us, where is it that this main narrative uh, uh, on China, this basically um, respectable mainstream perspective, is it formed as a state directive line then passed down to everybody? Is it organic in some way? Is it just racism or Orientalism that informs this? Um, and you can expand this to Asia in general, but yeah, I, I hand off the floor. I've rambled too long. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where it's coming from. I think it's a little bit of everything that you mentioned, but I just want to give two examples that give a window to maybe how this all works, right? Um, First example, and these are examples from early on in the COVID pandemic. Um, The first example was that in March of 2020, the Daily Beast obtained a State Department cable in which the White House instructed officials when speaking to journalists 
uh, about COVID to shift the blame of the pandemic onto China and to focus on China orchestrating a cover-up which allowed the pandemic to spread the way that it did. And this, you kind of see how the levers of power work. Uh, around the time of this White House cable, Trump started calling it the China virus. And shortly thereafter, mainstream mm. media published a bunch of op-eds written by think tank people defending his use of the term. Also in 2020, uh, the National Republican Senatorial Committee released a 57-page memo instructing GOP candidates to address the COVID crisis by aggressively attacking China and aggressively blaming China. They told them to stress three main talking points. The first was that China covered it up in the beginning stages. The second was that Democrats are, um, quote unquote, soft on China. And the third is that Republicans will push for sanctions on China that will punish China for its role in this pandemic. So these two things, the State Department cable and GOP memo, they kind of pull back the curtain on the relationship between the U.S. government and mainstream media. I think you mentioned uh, Orientalism a few minutes ago, but corporate media functions as this kind of ideological apparatus of U.S. empire in that it falls in line with and jumps up support for U.S. foreign policy. Um, and it does so through the right of representation. It has the power and ability to define our understandings of a given region, of a given people. And in the case of China, um, the media follows this uh, very Orientalist tradition of defining China in its supposed relation to the West, never defining China on its own terms, so that China never fully exists on its own terms, but instead held up as a foil to Western civilizational superiority. Obviously, China is not unique in any way in this regard. It's also very similar to the way uh, we understand, of course, the Middle East and also Iran. So this type of like Orientalist and Sinophobic representation uh, kind of operates on two levels, the political and the cultural, right? So on the political level, as a government, China is imagined as this authoritarian regime, a human rights disaster, always lying, deceitful, and it's always like framed as a moral crisis to be solved. And the implication is that it's to be solved by the US through the implementation of Western liberal democracy. Um, on a cultural level, you know, China as a people are imagined as morally and culturally inferior, a backward civilization, barbaric, filthy, diseased, so cruel that, you know, they'll eat anything that moves. And a good example of this was in the very beginning stages of the pandemic, there was this obsessive coverage of Chinese dietary habits um, and the weird things that they eat. The weird things that are used in traditional Chinese medicine, um, the exotic animal parts that are used in traditional Chinese medicine, um, and also, of course, uh, obsessive coverage of these so-called wet markets, um, the supposed mm. hygienic conditions of these wet markets, the kinds of animals, the exotic animals that were sold at these wet markets. And what they did was they revived these old stereotypes of Chinese people as like filthy and backwards and just, um, you know, these disgusting carriers of disease. And these images didn't come out of nowhere, right? There were revised stereotypes of Chinese immigrants that date all the way back to the 19th century when the Chinese came to the U.S. to dig for gold and build railroads. And so at that time, they were seen as a threat to white labor. So there were all these kinds of very racist uh, images circulating about Chinese people. Like it was really common 
uh, in political cartoons or even advertisements to depict Chinese people as being really dirty, um, living on top of one another in these really unsanitary conditions, and just like in general being like really unclean and eating rats. That was that's a really common image from that time: Chinese people eating rodents. So. The assumption is that unless stopped, China will impose its own backward political and cultural civilization onto the West. So that's the Orientalism aspect of it, and like maybe we can get into this later. But there's also like this ecosystem of like national security, think tanks, corporate media, and defense contractors that are you know really active in this media.、Uh, Representation, this media narrative around China, but maybe we can get into that a little bit later. Yeah, no, but very, very beautifully put.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the、um, the truth of, of the matter, I think, is no matter what perspective you really have on non-Western white political systems of any kind, but particularly socialism, the underpinning of it is always going to be a form of Orientalism,、uh, because at the end of the day. If you can't dehumanize these people, or you can't basically make a caricature and then insult the caricature,、um, then、uh, there would be at least some level of understanding that makes the vitriol kind of not make sense. It makes、uh, the the what's called the facade breaks, right? And that's why you see, for example, during the the Korean War, when American、uh, soldiers defected to the Korean and Chinese side, they quickly realized that these aren't the you know. Uh, associated, you know, racist stereotypes、uh, that we were be- we were being told.、Um, these are just regular people, and they're actually fighting for a reasonable cause. Same thing with the Soviets, etc., etc. Et But it's very interesting to to, to note、uh, how big of the、uh, the racist component, how big of a part it's playing、uh, in the 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 general geopolitical shift against China, particularly by the United States. There's another question that I would like、uh, that I would like to ask you.、Um, before we were talking about, of course, this this respectable journalism.、Um, of course, this comes in many forms,、uh, usually backed by think tanks, quote unquote experts, or the the, the Twitter freedom fighters,、um, <laughs> especially with the Russia Ukraine stuff.、Um, but yeah,、uh, the, the the world is full of full of、uh, these high budget、uh, NGOs whose entire job is to basically go tell people in other countries、uh, how unfree they are, how much they should love the West and particularly the United States. How it's great when their factories, like Western factories, come to them, but it's authoritarian chaos when other people's factories、uh, come to their land, and so on, and so on.、Uh, what do you think about the the what you got in terms the freedom <laughs> industrial complex?、Uh, do you think, or do you find yourself agreeing with the China experts, quote unquote experts, who most of which don't even speak any Mandarin, and the Asia experts and so-called democracy experts? Do you find yourself agreeing with these people? I mean, no. <laughs> the the whole freedom industrial <laughs> complex, which I really love that name you gave it.、Um, this whole industry relies on our very limited understanding of what democracy and freedom is, and our acceptance of that. Right? Like, what is democracy、mm-hmm. in the U.S.? That just means bourgeois liberal democracy, based on individual rights.、Um, you know, it often. Just translates into having an election every few years or so.、Mm. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, the people that we vote in that they come from this revolving door of corporate lawyers. As long as we have an election every few years, then、mm. people see that as democratic. You know, we think of democracy as freedom of speech, freedom of self-expression.、Um, it prioritizes the individual over the collective, which often translates. To meaning freedom to exploit others, right? But it doesn't take into consideration economic rights, 
So, you know, like what good is freedom of speech if you can't afford rent? What good is freedom of speech if you mm. like precariously live paycheck to paycheck? If you can't put food on the table for your family to eat? We only have democracy for the bourgeoisie. And, you know, you can... Uh, you uh, going back to the COVID pandemic, you saw it in the very beginning when um, there were lockdowns in certain countries in China because you know this policy prioritized the collective good over uh, over the individual. But you know what circulated in U.S. media, you know they were claiming that China was infringing upon the human rights of people by you know locking them in their house. Uh, limiting people's human rights to uh, like move about freely, you know, not taking into consideration the collective good of stopping the spread of this disease. And so these so-called democracy experts, what I find is that they judge China by their own understanding of liberal democracy, which is like kind of unfair mm. because China has never claimed to be a liberal democracy. Um, so I think if you're going to judge a country's political system, uh, shouldn't you have an understanding of its core political tenets? Um, shouldn't you have an understanding of, you know, Marxism-Leninism and judge its political system on its application of that? Like China holds a national congress every five years to determine the party's priorities yeah. based on the changing material conditions. And since its revolution in 1949, they have looked at the evolving material conditions in its own country and formed policy around that, right? So as China evolved, the conditions and along with them, the primary contradictions have evolved too. Uh, during Mao's time, you know, he determined the primary contradiction to be class struggle. And so he developed policies around that. And then around the Deng period, they said, you know, the primary contradiction is no longer class struggle. It's backward social productivity versus material needs. And so they developed a policy around that. And then, you know, a few years ago, Xi Jinping looked at the material conditions and they said, well, the primary contradiction is now uneven development. And they developed policies around that. So, I mean, there's obviously like an underlying motive here of these so-called democracy experts in spreading this narrative around China. But I also think it a lot of it is very dependent on our own tacit acceptance of what democracy is and that the U.S. has democracy, uh, liberal democracy. And other countries, you know, strive for it also. Absolutely. When you have a loose enough definition of a particular thing, you can uh, you can spin how badly somebody else is applying it as much as you want to, even when the other uh, group, person, country, state, ideology never even uh, said that it is applying it. In this case, uh, liberal democracy. But even liberal democracy cannot be defined by 99% of these so-called uh, Western academics uh, as such. So, you know, it makes it... if. They cannot define it, and the other guy they are criticizing uh, does not accept it as their own dogma. 
uh, it's just a, a complete free-for-all. I mean, you can get a plane ticket to a particular country, stay there a week, and after that, uh, make your whole personality that thing, you know, the, the people that go to Erasmus, to, to Spain, and then they tell you, you know, you can't call it Barcelona, you got to call it Barcelona, and they're all of a sudden uh, experts on a said topic. So half of these quasi-journalists are... Uh, or just that, and but you know, in the uh, one could argue, you know, in in this beautiful capitalist market in which we have, if you do not have a particular level of expertise, like nobody's actually going to read your stuff. But the market kind of adapted to that, and half of these people post articles that absolutely nobody reads, but because they're pushing a particular narrative, they can always find a donor or two that is going to literally throw cash at them to keep writing said articles, so that then a senator can quote them, just like. The two Harvard boys, you know, when they wrote that, mm-hmm. you know, it turned into a whole uh, tsunami worth of uh, misinformation when it comes to the debt trap. But yeah, it's 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 a um, we always say this word here on the show. It's a snake that it eats its own uh, butt, uh, and this is uh, the 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 freedom um, country experts are just that. The, the, as long as there's enough um, think tanks and uh, private capital individuals uh, and even political parties of this or that type that are willing to give them enough cash to spin a particular story towards uh, a particular part of the world, there's always going to be guys that will be more than willing to accept that and say whatever the big boss wants them to say. It's literally market-driven. Uh, yeah, uh, very, very beautifully put uh, from both of you. Um, something that I, I always find a bit, um, I, I mean, I don't know if you'd say it calls funny or not, but uh, maybe more, more sad is that there is a sort of... Um, What's the term in English for this? Uh, a, a sort of like condescension, I believe, uh, may, may fit uh, from part of these these uh, Western NGOs and then the politicians that pick them up, and then the zeitgeist, you know, the liberal mindset uh, overall of of the West, in which if the, if you're not doing everything the way we want it and the way we do it and the way things function in our societies, then automatically it's worse. Automatically, it's you know. Um, uh, not only negative, but it's there's either uh, the, somebody's being played somewhere. So, for example, it's not real democracy. We are we're the only ones with the real democracy. It's either that, or if at the closest you'd get, you'd get a strange like fetishization or or fascination um, that you get, for example, like white liberals with Japan, uh, which would be in all you know uh, by all measures, I think we could say a fairly. Um, uh, run-of-the-mill liberal type of democracy uh more akin to western europe than north america but still uh and and in this case then because they're not you know of of the 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 hegemon otherwise um they still are orientalized in and of themselves but the very fact of the matter is that um chinese uh social structure chinese political institutions china's economic system their attachment to socialism and particularly marxism leninism uh and the incredibly deep um level of analysis and discussions that go on uh, within their circles, studying this and then relaying it to uh, regular people in the West, and particularly Americans, won't do them any good. In fact, this will only damage their case because they'll realize that, hey, why is it that they're having conversations over there that we should be having over here? Why is it that year by year their living standards are improving, meanwhile ours have stagnated or become worse? Uh, why is it that, for example, the Chinese economy, which we're supposed to think of China as some poor third world uh, country where nothing runs, everything's made, uh, everything's super low quality, uh, people eat dogs or 
something else racist to that uh, to that uh, train of thought. These kind of perspectives, but when they look at the the real figures on uh, on paper and in reality, they come to realize that the Chinese economy and the uh, political system are developing far far uh, better uh, and going far further than the so-called you know uh, pinnacle number one freedom leading country on earth the United States um, and this will become even more evident in 5 10 15 and 20 years from now I'm just wondering what the perspective will be down the line actually but that's a conversation for another day uh, I have another another um, question that maybe you you uh, have a closer personal connection to we'll see um, but we know that there are capital interests within journalism, mm-hmm. right? Um, all the quote-unquote respectable uh, publishers, um, they have something else behind them. It's not just, you know, oh, free press and we say what we like, particularly in the quote-unquote radio-free blanks, all right? The only exception, of course, is uh, our dear Radio Free Amanda. <laughs> uh, but all the other ones, of course, uh, not so much. I was wondering, could you please tell us a little bit about that uh, or your perspectives on this at least? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the real money behind these uh, sort of uh, houses like the Radio Free Blanks um, and the opinions that they hold and carry. Yeah, well, um, in the case of outlets like Radio Free Asia and Voice of America, um, those are literally funded by the U.S. government. These mm. outlets uh, are funded and housed within what's called the U.S. Agency for Global Media, um, which is an agency of the U.S. government. And they receive funding by the U.S. government. Um, and they were established during the Cold War to spread anti-communist propaganda in countries where communist parties were in power. And one interesting thing about the U.S. Agency for Global Media is that it also funds and oversees um, what's called the Open Technology Fund. And the Open Technology Fund um, apps like Signal have received this funding, um, and the Open Technology Fund has also helped develop the tech that undergirds Facebook, Skype, and WhatsApp. And the rationale behind the U.S. funding these um, this technology is that um, this kind of encrypted messaging can be used overseas by you know quote unquote pro democracy activists in places like China, Iran, Cuba, um, in order to foment popular dissent because these private communication systems kind of circumvent uh, government interception because they're encrypted, right? So, you know, that's the story behind Radio Free Asia and Voice of America and those sorts of outlets. But I also think CIA money moves in ways that we can't even possibly imagine, right? It's really hard to track because the CIA won't directly give money to dissidents. They won't directly give money to organizations because, um, you know, why would they do that when it could so easily be Mm. tracked? So what happens is they end up setting up fake organizations to launder this money through. So they'll set up a fake organization and give them their, the CIA money, and then it'll give it to another fake organization, and then it'll give it to uh, a real organization on the ground. Um, so it's this like it's a way that the CIA launders money, and I think uh, it does so in a way that we don't even know about. But what we do know about is the NED, the National Endowment for Democracy. And this organization, of course, was um, set up during the Reagan administration with the express purpose to be a CIA cutout in order to more covertly fund um, anti-communist activity in other countries. So it was set up during the Cold War um, 
to do that. But, you know, it continues to this day and they continue to funnel millions of dollars every year into so-called pro-democracy programs in China. And, you know, the NED has been really open about funding a lot of the Uyghur human rights groups. Like they fund the World Uyghur Congress, the Uyghur Human Rights Project, the Campaign for Uyghurs. Um, and a lot of times uh, it's representatives from these organizations that are often called upon by more mainstream outlets to provide commentary on Xinjiang. So these corporate media outlets call upon you know, these representatives from these NED funded groups, but they also call upon representatives from you know, think tanks to provide commentary in an article about China. Or um, these think tank people are invited to write op-eds about China and the China threat. And so uh, you read the article or the op-ed and you see this quote from this think tank person. You see their affiliation um, and they usually represent some think tank with a very innocuous name. Like, I don't know, like the Democracy Mm -hmm. Center or the International Institute for Strategic Studies. You know, you look at their annual reports. You look at, you know, the funding that they get, and a lot of it uh, comes from donations from, like, literally the weapons industry. Like, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, um, I looked at their report for fiscal year 2021, and all these defense contractors, including Airbus, Raytheon, Boeing, General Atomics, Lockheed Martin, they all donated over $100,000 to the International Institute for Strategic Studies in 2021. Weapons manufacturers like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. Also in general, big tech will often make large donations to these think tanks like Google and Facebook, um, because I said earlier, China restricts a lot of access um, to these companies um, in order to develop its own tech sector. Um, So these uh, tech companies, these U.S. Uh, tech companies will fund these anti-China think tanks because they have a material interest in opening up the Chinese tech market for themselves. Mm -hmm. These think tanks also produce reports on China, which are often read by people who affect uh, foreign policy, or these reports are often cited in corporate media outlets on any kind of article about China. And in general, uh, I mentioned this earlier, but there's like a very close relationship between national security think tanks, and defense contractors. Um, There's often a revolving door of staff among these three sectors. You know, Uh, Lloyd Austin, who sat on the board of Raytheon and continues to uh, hold stocks, have stock Raytheon stocks. He's now the head of the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, defense contractors will work together with think tanks like um, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Uh, to organize conferences that are attended by national security officials. And also, like, Tim Shorak has written a lot on this, but a lot of the intelligence analysis uh, by the CIA and NSA is increasingly being contracted out to these same defense contractors. And somehow that's not seen as a conflict of interest, right? Um, If you're, of course, you're going to produce intelligence reports, which will lead to more weapon sales, which will lead to more profit for the defense contractor that you're working for, right? There's like a clear material interest and a clear conflict of interest here. There's just like this ecosystem of think tanks 
and national security and corporate media that's producing these these anti-China articles. And, you know, they all have a material interest in this and creating a narrative which will support a military confrontation with China. Yeah, no, beautifully. Again, um, uh, I think people will have so much to learn actually on this particular topic. But I would like to um, just uh, touch on the, the, that point as well, or at least to emphasize it, that a lot of groups, think tanks and groups and whatnot that project these types these opinions, um, the money behind them is always incredibly telling. And I like the fact that you mentioned that a lot of the time, for example, it's usually like uh, weapons manufacturers or those very close and direct investors within weapons manufacturing. Yes. And that really gives, really does, you know, uh, get the noggin a jogging, as the Americans say. Uh, <laughs> why would, why possibly would it be for, for example, Lockheed Martin to support uh, quote unquote human rights in Xinjiang? Of course, this is not to, uh, assume or to say that there's absolutely no chance of some sort of, I don't want to use the word abuse, but some shortcoming of the Chinese policy, right, within Xinjiang. Nobody's trying to say this 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 perspective or to give this opinion. But the very fact that um, the same groups that had no issue bombing my country to the Stone Age and bombing uh, Yugopnik's country into the Stone Age um, in the past uh, 30 years, uh, all of a sudden cares all this much about uh, Muslims in Xinjiang. It's, it is very two-faced and it's very, um, what's it called, uh, transparent, I would like to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, transparency doesn't seem to be always very clear to the American public. Yeah. I was thinking about this earlier and maybe uh, you guys could help me flesh it out. But um, I was thinking, you know, on labor issues in China and maybe Xinjiang. Mm. Um, there are very similar labor issues that uh, occur within the U.S. as well. You know, mm. we're seeing like strikes. We're seeing like this wave of strikes across the country. And we're seeing like mm. these really awful labor abuses that occur within different industries like Starbucks and the railroad industry and nurses. But within the U.S., uh, they're just called a labor struggle Whereas, you know, if you Mm. have some sort of labor struggle in China, it's always framed as a human Mm -hmm. rights violation. And I think that's like kind of that's another example of the Orientalist frame that, um, you know, we impose upon China. Because like why why are labor struggles in China called human rights violations when, you know, there are often Mm. similar violations occurring in the U.S., but those are not called human rights violations. Exactly. It also plays on the lack of any class consciousness that most, unfortunately, American citizens don't possess. Like if you say, oh, my God, there's like uh, labor violations in this particular country, or you say, you know, there's also many unions, also many strikes, everybody switches the channel, everybody switches to the next page, everybody Mm -hmm. clicks off of that particular thing. But uh, because of this uh, uh, liberalized, the notion of what the culture is, what the nation is, you know, mm. it's very, it's very loud. All the, all the especially white liberals want to show how <laughs> not bigoted and not racist and super supportive yeah. of diversity they are. So when you say, you know, there's a cultural genocide, when there's a destruction of a people, instead of others, you know. Uh, labor rights being attacked you know it doesn't play at their identity because to Mm -hmm. a liberal uh, class identity means basically nothing so uh, it just you know it works better 
that's all uh, added on on the orientalism and everything that you mm. put but the, the, just you know if i was selling it to the american public i would sell it the same way and fundamentally also it's it's a like the ling- uh, there's a linguistic uh, point there in that you know the usual oh there's that's the ccp regime it's not the chinese government it's you know oh communist party policy it's not just you know regular government policy or whatnot um etc etc all of this is fundamentally also just kind of uh pulls back to the point of m- m- consent manufacture um what every single chance you you get you should take to uh negatively depict uh the chinese government chinese people chinese um social policy and economic development because if you were to do otherwise um and this is the the, the beauty of the so-called free uh, press of the west if you were to do otherwise um then you might start giving people ideas you might mm-hmm. start making them think hey why is it that the Chinese government, uh, that the Chinese economy, excuse me, is growing still like, you know, at in relatively insane rates compared to the United States, even though their economy could now be considered to be a mature manufacturing uh, economy? Um, why is it that, for example, the vast majority of Chinese people agree with their government mm-hmm. policies, unlike the United States? I was just going to say, I also think calling it a human rights violation kind of impels some sort of action on the part of the international community. Um, so like a human rights violation, you know, it would be a violation of human rights law. And so that would um, that would imply taking some sort of action, like taking them to international criminal court uh, or something like that. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, if you just call it like a labor struggle, it doesn't really call upon mm. any sort of action by the international community. So it's a way. Yeah. So it's another way of like trying to punish China. Mm-hmm. I think also um, it's an American way of maintaining uh, supremacy over the discourse because the second they give up the the human rights point um, that they, the second they stop talking about or harping on it better to say uh, then that's the same second that the rest of the world will begin to use that terminology and that, those kind of uh, opinions or arguments against them and this time against the Americans it's actually valid <laughs> unlike with the rest of the world um, the uh, every single uh, sort of again to the protection point every single thing that the United States accuses other countries of doing the United States is more guilty of uh, in sheer uh, amount in extent uh, in length of time uh etc etc so it's it's uh again a very tired uh hegemony point um that uh, simply needs combating from people like us and you and uh similar uh, outlets uh, until finally uh the the <laughs> the american decline is finalized uh in which the rest of the world will kind of get on board and then we'll have this multipolarity that will bring its negatives and positives um, with that being said, though, I think we have a nice final like uh, bit to, to end on, which uh, hopefully will be uh, uh, entertaining for, for the audience and hopefully also for you for answering it. Um, there's many wacky anti-China groups uh, that operate uh, outside of the United States. Some of them even operate within, within China. Um, and one of our favorites to learn mm-hmm. about, I, w- I would say, is, is the Falun Gong. Oh. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> could, could you please just give us a, a general rundown of what this is? Oh, my is? God. I would love to talk about the Falun Gong. Um, I, okay, so I don't know how familiar the average lay person is with the Falun Gong, um, but the Falun Gong, uh, is... Talk to an idiot. We're all idiots. We never heard about Okay, them. Just, okay. Sh- all the wackiness, just mm. throw it directly in our face. <laughs> the Falun Gong is basically this right-wing cult that operates... Well, the leader lives in New York, and he lives in exile because... China, 
ban this cult because they have like some really extreme views. Um, so Falun Gong is the name of the organization and the name of the spiritual practice, uh, like the the scriptures that they read and the exercises and meditation that they do. That's all called Falun Gong too. And it's a mix of what's called like Qigong, which is a popular Chinese exercise practice. And then Li Hongji, that's the leader, his own spiritual philosophy. And Li Hongji claims that he's the reincarnation of Buddha. <laughs> and I think uh, he created this organization, this group, in the mid-1990s. And by the, uh, within a few years, he attracted thousands of people into it. And in 1999, the CPC declared it a cult and banned it from China. So Li Hongji uh, moved to New York and has been living in exile ever since. Um, and the CPC has issued an arrest warrant for him, so he, there's no way he can return to China. But if you go to any Chinatown in New York City, in Flushing, or in Manhattan, the Falun Gong has like a really heavy presence there, and they have wow. a booth set up, and they'll hand out pamphlets um, and ask you to sign a petition to like quote unquote end the CPC, whatever that means. But the Falun Gong um, has some really wacky beliefs. They believe that evolution isn't real. Um, they believe that homosexuality, promiscuity, and interrelationships are unnatural. And all this is like based on you know previous speeches that the leader has given. Sorry, what are interrelationships? Interracial relationships. Interracial relationships? Oh, my God. So we yeah. got the nice little... Oh, okay. <laughs> so we got the homophobia. We got the racism. We got the anti-science. Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay, please continue. Um, wait, I'm not, I'm not even... These aren't even the wackiest of the beliefs. Okay, okay, okay. They also believe that aliens invaded Earth and introduced modern science and computers and technology in order to control the human race and you know like get rid of people's spirituality uh, spiritual practices mm -hmm. so they have a ton of money they operate out of this 427 acre compound in upstate Whoa. new york it's called dragon springs and it's the epicenter of all the falun gong uh, operations um and it's also why didn't the aliens stop their like money income their bank accounts and shit sorry that i'm <laughs> interluding i just i love this please um and it's this dragon springs compound is also the center of operations for uh what people might be a little bit more familiar with uh the shen yun dance performance thing i don't know if you guys live in the u.s but in every major city, there is, um, you know, you see posters everywhere with uh, advertising this what's called the Shen Yun performance. And it's like this uh, contemporary this dance performance that uh, claims to revive traditional uh, Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. the tagline on this for a long time was, 5,000 years of civilization reborn. So that was the old tagline. Mm -hmm. The new tagline is China before communism. 
Um, <laughs> Before the alien communists. I love how, <laughs> how they, they, they were like, okay, there's somebody behind the commies that is destroying our beautiful mm. culture. But, you know, it's kind of old to just say Jews anymore. Oh uh, it's God. not really us. <laughs> so let, let's, let's fucking say aliens, you know. Fucking, yeah. Ain't nobody coming in and saying, hey, don't be yeah. racist towards the aliens. So, you know, mm. we got it good. Exactly. So it's fucking brilliant to an extent. Okay, uh, yep. hold on, hold on. So, so if the aliens taught communism, who taught uh, the Chinese before communism foot binding? Right. So this is so this um, this is like a basically like a really well funded anti CPC propaganda campa- campaign. Mm. Right. They the dance performance kind of situates China pre nineteen forty nine pre communism as the real China, and they want to take it back to that time again um before like the cpc Mm. came and ruined everything um so that that's the story behind the tagline china before communism which is like basically feudalism right Mm. um and there was this uh article that came out in the new yorker a few years ago um and it was an investigation into the into shen yun and falun gong um and i always read Uh, this passage from it because it's so ridiculous and it gives you an idea of what this performance actually is. So I'm just going to read a couple passages. Um, After we took our seats, two hosts with animatronic smiles speaking both Chinese and English began introducing a series of dances which were called things like goodness in the face of evil and the world divinely restored. The female dancers moved in hypnotic swirls, the male dancers jumped and flipped. Behind the stage was an enormous screen upon which digital backdrops, ancient temples, royal gardens, the cosmos, appeared along with digital dancers who would walk to the bottom of the screen and then pop out via the appearance of a living dancer on the stage. The colors were near neon and unnatural. They reminded me of the glowing hues of Photo Hunt, the tabletop bar game. The host started talking about a spiritual discipline called Falun Dafa, so Falun Dafa and Falun Gong, they're the same thing. They're just used inter- interchangeably. Mm-hmm. And then introduced a dance in which a beautiful young follower of Falun Dafa was kidnapped and imprisoned by communists who harvested <laughs> her organs. Mm-hmm. I see. A yes. man came on stage to sing a song in Chinese, which was translated on the screen behind him. We follow Dafa the great way he began, singing about a creator who saved mankind and made the world anew. Atheism and evolution are deadly ideas. Modern trends destroy what makes us human, he sang. At the end of the song, the row of older white people sitting behind me clapped fervently. In the final dance number, a group of Falun Dafa followers who wore blue and yellow and clutch books of religious teachings battled for space in a public square with corrupt youth. Their corruption was evident because they were wearing black, looking at their cell phones, and in the case of two men, holding hands. Chairman Mao appeared and the sky turned black. The city city in a digital backdrop was obliterated by an earthquake, then finished Mm. off by a communist Mm. tsunami. A red hammer and Uh sickle glowed in the center of the wave. (laughs) Yep. Dazed, I rubbed my hand my eyes and saw a huge bearded (laughs) face disappearing in the water. Was that? I said to my brother, Mm. wondering if I needed to go to the hospital. Karl Marx, he said. Yeah, I think that was a tsunami with the face of Karl Marx. (laughs) I love this. 
<laughs> you know, you're actually selling this very well. I want to go see this. I would pay good money for this. Ago, a few years yeah. ago, I wanted to go mm-hmm. see it as well, um, but I looked into ticket prices mm-hmm. and they were like almost $100, which is way too much to give to this okay, right wing cult that. just to mm-hmm. mock. Yep. Yeah, yep. exactly. But yeah, yeah. they, they that, I don't, that. I tried to look into their funding and I really couldn't find much. Um, but they have mm. to get some sort of dark money funding because For sure. in New York City they have regular performances in the Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Center in Manhattan, and I looked at their uh, you know some of their tax documents and they made mm. over thirty three million dollars in revenue in twenty nineteen. Mm. Um, so I just can't believe that. I mean, they're getting membership fees. The Falun Gong's is getting membership mm. fees, but I can't. I really can't believe that um, all this money is just coming from ticket sales. Um, So there's that. No, no. And then the Falun Gong also has this media outlet, this media empire, which I'm sure like listeners Mm. have heard of. It's (laughs) called the Epoch Times. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Last article I read there is that uh, the the CCP is putting grenades in Chinese soldiers' helmets. Oh my god! To <laughs> remotely blow them up in case they want to run away. Fucking brilliant! Uh, oh, sorry, yeah. Please. So okay. Yep. So these are all um, organizations that are definitely affiliated with the Falun Gong, like the Shenyun mm. performance. Everyone uh, who dances in that and everyone in the orchestra well everyone who dances that in that is a practitioner of Falun Gong and then um I think the orchestra I was watching this YouTube video and they there was this uh, guy who uh played the trumpet in the Falun Gong orchestra Mm. and um he was just like this white American but I mean he didn't follow uh, Falun Gong but he said that um, they would make him read the scriptures and do the practice with everyone else. Um, And then, Mm. okay, so this media outlet, Epoch Times, you know, everyone who works there is also a part of Falun Gong, and it was founded in 2000 by this guy named John Tang, who's also a follower of Falun Gong. And, of course, uh, you all may know it as this peddler of pro-conspiracy and very pro-Trump propaganda uh, during the Trump administration, and they were like kind of peddling out all these like COVID conspiracy theories around China. But the Trump administration is when they really started to uh, flourish. Um, mm. Revenues quadrupled during the Trump term. And they, I think in like 2019, they spent over $1.5 million in Facebook ads. And there was this report that came out by NBC News that said that um, the Epoch Times was the second largest funder of pro-Trump Facebook ads after the Trump campaign itself. And Facebook actually barred the newspaper from taking out any more ads because um, it said that it was evading its advertising transparency rules. Um, And that's when Mm -hmm. it pivoted to YouTube. So now, like, anytime I watch a video on YouTube, I'm, like, inundated with Epoch Times advertisements. Um, but, you know, speaking to the kind of funding that it gets, I really couldn't find uh, any direct sources of it, except that um, during COVID, um, the Epoch Media Group received like between 150000 to $350,000 in federal COVID bailout funds. 
Lol. Uh, yeah. Yeah. COVID doesn't exist, but we ask for some <laughs> COVID bailout funds. I <laughs> yeah. So um, basically, uh, Falun Gong is a very well-funded influence op to foment opposition to the Chinese government. And it's one of these um, mm. major peddlers of this uh, narrative that the Chinese government is harvesting organs because mm. it, it claims that there are like millions of uh, Fal Falun Gong practitioners in um, prisons in China. And, yeah, that and they're organs taking their organs and yeah, shit. Exactly, yeah, exactly. If, if you say Falun Gong to 20 people, probably 15, at least in my part of the world, they're going to tell you, oh, those are that's that mm. religious group that's oppressed and they're taking their hearts and brains. And like, yeah, I wish. I'm sorry. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like they're taking their brains. There are clearly is none to take. I mean, that's the biggest fallacy. <laughs> a horrible of economy. Fucking... <laughs> Which like mob yeah. boss wants a new Falun Gong brain for their, you know, dying kid. It's a bad business yeah. model right there. Mm. Uh, hearts oh as well. They don't sound like they have hearts. Hey, you know what? If anything, they got they got spirit, which is clear from the from the Marx <laughs> tsunami. Um, I just want to see that clip. I want to see that bit where where Mao shows up and then Marx finishes off. But otherwise, all the rest of it, yeah, it can be a. Uh, throw in the trash. Very, very interesting. Um, it's it, the most important part of of all of this is uh, like you know we lose ourselves in the silliness of this. But there are there are surprisingly sophisticated propaganda network, um, and they've managed to convince, passively convince, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around oh, the yeah. world that this this is a real thing. That number one, they're a real religious group. Number two, that they uh, are genuinely like imprisoned and and uh, harvested and whatnot. All this strange nonsense. As funny as it is, we need to realize number number one, we need to learn of these people's tactics, mm -hmm. uh, and number two, we need to be extra vigilant because um, it just shows the sophistication of the the the, the propaganda techniques at the um, uh, and the tools that, that can be used. Um, so even something so so ridiculous and so silly uh, can somehow still end up being fairly uh, what's it called um, convincing. And then you you attach this along with all the you know the the white sex pest uh, people who were who live in in China these expats so called expats uh, who make videos with titles like oh China the China the CCP tried to honeypot me oh <laughs> <laughs> and they have a, a censored picture of some Chinese woman poor poor Chinese woman on the on the thumbnail or the usual the stern looking. Xi Jinping is like China's gonna fall, fail in 28 <laughs> <Every> seconds <laughs> <laughs> and there are always 5 million views have you noticed it's always yeah. a ridiculous amounts of views who's what which guy watches one of these videos subscribes and then weekly he gets the same fucking thumbnail and they spent so much so much on advertising like you know everybody was like oh my god you know this is fucked up they're destroying our democracy through advertising during you know Trump election mm. season and you know in the recent elections blah 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 but Absolutely nobody bats an eye when you spend like two mil on like a completely fake news video that you share on Facebook or YouTube, on Twitter, wherever, yeah. uh, on Reddit. Oh my God, on Reddit about <laughs> uh, this country or that country eating babies and, you know, mm. shitting them out and throwing the shit off of skyscrapers or whatever and then making yeah. food that they export to your particular country. It's absolutely everybody, nobody, you know, nobody bats an eye because, you know, it does not impact our democracy, even though arguably it impacts it to an 
extent even more than uh, you know just pushing yeah. one candidate of the other and like why maybe some some listeners are going to be like okay you know this is a relatively important topic but like why is it is it that important well because like the narrative on China is so intense and so directly pushed mm. into your mind uh, mm-hmm. that like it arguably I, I, I can't like even during the Cold War, uh, we did. Bec- I guess because we did not have the technology and we did not have the internet, basically, uh, as much disinformation about you know the quote-unquote enemy wasn't proliferated as mm. much as it is uh, uh, today. To me, you know, as somebody kind of relatively in the in the industry, you know, unfortunately, I spend a very big part of my life, you know, uh, uh, selling products, selling PR, selling ads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It is absolutely immaculately. Uh, interesting to me just how much not only they are successful in pushing this sort of propaganda but how much like mm. the, the the content machine loves it because it's 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 so easily watchable it is so easy to consume and it is it is just uh, uh, the, the market stimulates you know this this sort of uh, uh, repackaged hatred towards one particular people country government or whatever that, that it just uh, like it, it at this point you know we, we, we talked about many things about you know why did it happen who still funds it who funded it in the beginning etc etc extremely important i agree with the most important topics but at this point correct me if i'm wrong but it's kind of like an animal that feeds itself an animal that's it's already it's already out there like it it just uh it self-stimulates to grow if you like you're a random stupid ass content creator like myself or whatever and i want to you know i'm the algorithm is killing me and i want to make some money i literally just i open epoch times Mm -hmm. and i just read out an article that they posted i pay an editor some for some decent editing 10 minutes i write the you know the title china is about to uh be destroyed they will have to sell children to the west in in a month and i'm gonna get two mil views that's fucking 20k i'm fucking great man for the month it's 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 so much in the mainstream narrative that it just you know it's it's uh doubting it or you know not Participating in the said narrative is suicide. While participating in it, mm. literally, can make you rich. It's impressive. Sorry for the rant. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think a nice final point to kind of tie this up is the difference between organic and this artificial kind of. Uh, uh, well, I, we can use the word propaganda in its in its actual definition sense. It's trying to propagate a particular idea. Um, but when you see, for example organic information sharing for example like the the all the uh, news coming out of palestine uh, and the fact that you know uh, israel is an Ill- illegitimate state it's not states illegal settle settler colonial uh, entity military occupation over a so- sovereign country and sovereign people sovereign people um and all the information coming out of palestine and all the um organic efforts by people and different different people different journalists different outlets and all of this still doesn't have even half the impact as some well-funded like you know state department plus ngo nonsense about china being evil and this and that and it's very telling also that uh no matter how much effort we put in there's always this big you know goliath that we kind of have to 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 fight against um but we're doing it we're this is the good part of, of the good fight yeah i think that's a really good point about like what's organic and what's not you know like i think about the protests in cuba back in july of what was it 2020 and you know when that was going on you know you saw all of these like very obvious like bot accounts 
using that hashtag SOS Cuba, just like inundating (laughs) social media with these like very anti uh, Cuban government uh, posts and narratives. And, you know, like I, I, the State Department or the CIA has to be like doing the same thing with China as well. Um, They have to be like creating these bot accounts to spread this narrative on Twitter. So yeah, like what's organic and what's not, it makes it very, very difficult to parse through. Yeah, no, exactly right. I think with with, with all this, uh, we've... um... Transmitted enough information, of course. Uh, Amanda is a wealth of a wealth of knowledge. Uh, we've only scratched the surface uh, of all the great work that she does. Um, but uh, the the gist of all this is: read up and make and do your proper research about China. Anything you hear about China, be at least slightly skeptical. Uh, try to verify your sources. Try to see who's paying for these things to be said, uh, so on and so forth. Um, even the most quote unquote critically minded people can be fooled by slick propaganda. So do your research. As for uh, you, Amanda, please do let us uh, know what what do you currently have in the works? Where can people find you? Uh, what, what do you have uh, currently uh, that's cooking up? I so people should follow me on Twitter, cat content only. Uh, you know where I do some shit posting, some serious posting. Uh, if people uh, want to check out like more long form work, I have a podcast called Radio Free Amanda. We have some free episodes. Um, a lot of the episodes are behind the paywall. If you enjoyed this episode, check out my podcast. And I would really appreciate it if you subscribed and supported the show. As far as written work, this was mentioned earlier in the episode, but I published an article a few weeks ago on the myth of Chinese debt trap diplomacy. And I can give you all the link to put in the show notes. And It's on Liberation News mm. and a few other outlets. But um, yeah, if you enjoyed uh, this episode, you should check out that article because uh, it really gets into the details of this um, Chinese debt trap diplomacy myth that, you know, I couldn't really get into here because it would just take the entire episode. I'm doing a little bit of writing. Um, I think I'm going, my next article is going to be on uh, the role of the IMF in Ukraine and mm. the IMF debt trap in that conflict Mm. so hopefully that will be out soon if i can like get myself to finish it (laughs) plenty plenty to look forward to i'm very excited to read that we'll include of course as always uh, all the relevant links in the show notes Uh, so do go check her work out check out the article support her work on patreon uh, keep uh, keep up the the good journalistic fight. Um, you have a lot more patience than we do, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> for this nonsense. <laughs> yeah, thank you so thank much you. for having me on. I'm like I said earlier. Yeah, I'm a fan of the show, so it was a you know it was a pleasure being on. And that has been the deep program for today. I'm Hakim. I'm Yugopnik. I'm Amanda. Don't let the CCPP fall off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>